This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing a very special guest on the show, and I'd like to introduce him to you first. So my guest was educated at the University of Washington with a BA in finance and an MBA in marketing and strategic planning. Mr. James Johnson, my guest today, worked for more than 20 years in numerous Fortune 250 companies such as IBM, Warehouser, Agilent Technologies, and Intel. For the last 16 years, he served as a math teacher in a variety of high schools and middle schools in the Tacoma, Lakewood, and Seattle, Washington areas. His range spans from working in alternative schools to teaching algebra and geometry to gifted students to serving as an instructional leader and a math department chair. He's currently a member of the Seattle School District's Superintendent-Initiated African-American Male Advisory Committee. The committee's mission is to make systemic recommendations to the district staff, school leadership team, and educators to close the opportunity gap. As you can clearly see, Mr. Johnson could be retired or still working in corporate business However, he loves his middle school students and is excited to contribute to the achievement and rich history of Meany Middle School, her community, and her children. So, James, welcome to the Voice of Leadership. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen. Great to have you here. Thank you. And I don't know if I should call you Mr. Johnson like the students or not, but anyway. You call me anything I- you want to. <laughs> All right, I'm going to call you James today. I have a number of questions for you, and I really want my audience to get a chance to know about you and what you're doing. So, James, I know that you are a very gifted leader, and given your business school education and corporate background, I just want you to talk about what prompted you to become a middle school and high school educator. Accident. It was merely incidental. My uh, wife at the time was diagnosed with cancer and I was working with Intel and uh, traveled a lot, typically overseas and typically in Asia. So everywhere from South Korea to Philippines, China to India. And I was frequently gone for weeks at a time. So when she was diagnosed, I said, well, I can no longer do that work. We returned from California to uh, home base in Tacoma, Washington to be around family and friends, to offer support, and just to give me something to do. I just said, well, I think I'll just get a teaching certificate so I can be busy doing something. And I had been a mentor for about 25 years in high schools for children, and particularly students of color who were kind of on the margin. So I said, I like being around children. 
this will give me an opportunity to just keep my hand in that and then be home because I had two children in school, one in middle school and one in high school. So it, it was something that I didn't plan on doing, but it was a circumstance of my wife's illness. And so I just continued to do it over the years and found out that it was something that brought me a lot of gratitude and a lot of uh, positive uh, feedback and acknowledgement from the students that it made a difference in their lives. So it's something that I continue to do. Philosophically, it's something that my father always talked about, wanting me to somehow contribute to a greater good. So that's my contribution. It's really interesting, James, that sometimes we get called into the next chapter of our lives through circumstances that we really don't anticipate and that we didn't plan. A lot of the reason that I'm in my current company that I started, Transleadership, has to do with my mother's illness and the flexibility that I needed at that time in my life to really be able to travel back and forth frequently to the East Coast. So you just never know what actually prompts you to really end up living in the place you're supposed to be, although at the time you might not know that that's the case. Now you've got 16 years under your belt in that setting. So I'd like for you to talk to us about the landscape that's out there today. What are the challenges that students and particularly students of color face in today's school systems? It's it's multivariate. It's um, to in particular, it's just, uh, I would say, a combination of apathy. And I'm just saying generally, there's always exceptional students who in any school and district who are doing well, but overall, our students of color don't see a value of education. They have no aspirations or low aspirations and dreams. So if you ask them that, they're not dreaming and aspiring. And if you mention various career paths, they'll shake you off and say, I can't do that. And these are students who are 13, 14 years old, so they have their whole lives in front of them, but they've already made up their minds about what they can and cannot do. I typically tell them my story. Uh, My parents only graduated, well, they didn't graduate, they matriculated to the third grade. They were parents who lived down south and their families pulled them out of school after the third grade to contribute to the family economy. So once I tell them my story, they start to look a little bit differently, but they haven't typically heard that story from teachers saying, well, if I can do this, given where I came from, so can you. So the challenges are just not vested in education, not willing to uh, fear failure. And, you know, to learn anything, you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to get some feedback where you can and then you can continuously improve. So. Those are the realities in every school district that I've been in, African-American boys, males, have been at the lowest strata of any statistical measure. I've been in many schools where the highest grade point average was uh, perhaps a 2.2 or a 2.3 on a four-point scale. So the desire and the belief in themselves and students that they can achieve at a high level is, is uh, pretty much absent. You know, that's really a significant finding, what you're talking about. And I'm also interested by the fact that they perk up when they hear your story. And one of the things that I noted is that the Black Enterprise magazine, they had an article that was called, How Many Black Male Teachers Did You Have Growing Up? 
And in this article, they interviewed Vincent Cobb II and Rashid Coleman, and they are the founders of the Black Male Educators Convening, and they're operating out of Philadelphia. And their goal is really to triple the number of highly effective Black male teachers in Philadelphia. Their objective is to get to about 1,000 by 2025. And currently, they say there are only about 2% of, of the teachers that are Black males in their environment. And they further say that the educators are predominantly white, but the public school students are increasingly Black and brown. And what they've identified and noticed is that Black boys from low-income neighborhoods are 39% more likely to graduate and to go to college when they've been impacted by a highly effective Black male teacher. Now, I know in your case, you are also one in a big, huge haystack, so to speak. You're the only Black male math teacher out of how many teachers? Oh, approximately 20,000. Yeah, out of 20,000. That's huge. And if the emphasis right now is on STEM education, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. So say a little bit more about what difference you believe that your presence makes. Kind of like commenting on what the article said, that these boys are more likely to graduate and to go on when they have those role models in place. The critical piece is, so I'm not exactly sure what my impact is, and let me tell you why. So when I taught high school math from algebra to advanced algebra, typically what I'd find is students, black males who are multiple grade levels behind. Now they're in high school and they're trying to graduate. Well, it's it's a challenge in that math scaffolds backwards and it assumes that you have some prior knowledge and you understand the relationship of numbers and things that you can do. It's a challenge when somebody is in advanced algebra and they can't multiply with single digit mm -hmm. numbers. And so so the, the challenge is to get students early, to get them early. So it's much better to build quality into the inspect versus trying to inspect it in once a student gets older. So if I can mm -hmm. get a student young, that's where I can really make an impact in their lives because, again, I can make sure that their foundation is solid. After a student is 16, 17, 18 years old, oh, basically what I'm doing is triage. I'm just trying to make sure that they can, they can function at a particular level and, and then my responsibility is to try to get them to qualify to graduate. However, that's not very satisfying. And I've had a number of students who did graduate who came back and tell me, thank you. But when I do any kind of longitudinal analysis of well, what are you doing now, most of them are not in a university. Most of them are working. They did graduate and they're working. So I've been on a quest to touch students earlier in their age group to be able to inspire them at a younger age to embrace math Many of my students believe that, and this is student talk, math is white. And I said, well, why did you say that? Because, and there's a young lady who wrote a book, Lisa Del Pitt, who said multiplication is for white people. And so there are students out there who just fundamentally believe in their heart that math is not something that they were born to do. So 
it's it's a difficult task to get a student later and try to deconstruct that mentality versus to get them early and to get them enthusiastic about what their capabilities are. So that's the big challenge is get them early. Yeah, and you know, this is really an important point. And of course, if we think about the workplace, you're getting them before they get to the official workplace later in their lives. And at that point, workplaces, corporations are looking for people who are already prepared. And they're looking for people who have a success and a track record. And what you're saying is that even intervening at middle school and high school may not be early enough because the children are missing the foundation. I can remember even a story in my life transitioning from one school to another, going from a superior school to an inferior school, and then from the inferior school to a much more superior school. When I made that last transition to the better school, they were doing division and I had not learned multiplication. And I had to learn them both at the same time, which, you know, not every student is maybe wired to do that. So that's really tough. So James, I I happen to know that, that you are an innovator. You're a very creative person when it comes down to education and you're always thinking outside of the box. So what are some of the special and unique ways that you intervene to inspire the children that you are working with right now? Well, that's a very good question. What I typically tell students, in fact, I've consistently told students, my expectation of every student in my class is that they will and can achieve at a high level. And my expectations is that they will get an A. I always get furrowed brows of, no, I can't do that. I've never been able to get an A out of math. And I said, well, I have a methodology in my class that will help you get there. There's a pathway. The pathway is built on work. So if you are conscientious, if you are coming to class prepared, if you are asking questions, if you are coming to see me, and I even tutor students on Saturday at a local high school for three hours on Saturday. So I'm making myself available. Many students just have questions and what they don't understand, they failed so much at math and been told so many times that they're wrong that they eventually just give up. Being told that you're incorrect in math is a part of the learning process. So my question to them is, what are you going to do about it? In my classroom, literally, you have to work to fail my class because I'm going to give you every opportunity to excel. And so I've done some things in my classroom that many teachers, quite frankly, don't understand. On every assessment that I give, I allow students the opportunity to talk during the assessment. That, that sounds pretty radical, and some people say, well, well, that's cheating. What I do is I allow them collaboration time because I understand that peers communicate differently than sometimes adults uh, communicate to children. During collaboration time, I walk around and I listen to the conversations. I'm looking for justification. I'm looking for the questions that are asked. I'm looking for the epiphanies that students uh, realize at that moment. And I tell students, if you learn from a peer during an assessment, I'm still happy that you learned the content. But I am going to ask that student, can you explain this to me? And if they can explain it to me, I know that they've learned it and I can move away. So I circulate doing an assessment during that 20 minute collaboration time. And I'm just listening. What kind of conversations, what kind of questions? I'm looking for the work ethic. Number two, 
regardless of what students achieve on a test, I tell them to be proud of it. And they always look at me again. They're confused. Well, what do you mean? You mean if even if I score 50 percent out of 100, I should be proud of that? Absolutely. My question is, what are you going to do about the remaining 50 percent? So I give students an opportunity to correct a test, to retake a test. Their test score can never go down. It can only go up. So I give students an opportunity to redeem themselves. And I never thought it was quite fair that in language arts, you get to do a rough draft and you get feedback from the teacher. Sometimes you hand it back and forth, you know, two, three, four times until that essay is polished and it's in a higher quality position. In math, typically it's a one and done. Here's the test. Oh, sorry, you didn't do very well. Well, better luck next time. So again, I am trying to instill a work ethic in, in my students, just keep at it, keep asking questions. Also, in my on my test, you can use all your class notes. Now, one of the reasons I do that is because I was not a note taker in middle school and, and probably not until high school. So I, we understand the value of taking notes. Many students say, well, I can't remember this. I said, well, I never asked you to remember anything. I just asked you to write it down. So if you're writing things down, you can refer to them. I think it was Einstein who said it's easier to read than to remember. So I'm trying to instill in their heads that the value of asking questions, writing down information so you can refer to it. So that pedagogy in my classroom gives people a safety net. They know they can retake a test. They know they're going to be able to collaborate during the test. They know they're going to be able to use their notes. I do explain to them that moving forward, the next teacher may not allow them to do that. But I'm trying to give them some agency of understanding how to advocate for their own education. And hopefully that will stick with them as they go into the next uh, next class. So I've been able to lift student achievement because now tests are not dreaded. I don't like a quiet classroom. So typically during my test, during collaboration time, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of conversation. And then students look forward to that time. And then I terminate that time after 20 minutes to the individual work. But achievement has risen because students know they will be provided another opportunity to improve. You know what, James, this is really significant because some of the skills that you are teaching them through this process, these are the skills that they will use in life and then in work later. You have to learn to collaborate with other people. You have to learn to research and to read and to keep notes and all of that. So in many ways, you are actually far more than a math teacher and you are really inspiring their education and learning in a broader sense. And so I also know, James, that you have some ways of incentivizing students even to read. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my, my classrooms are typically, I have books and uh, I was a late reader and you know this, the first book I read personally uh, in my academic career, I was 16. And I was inspired by some other students that I went to school with who were readers. And so in my classroom, even though it's a math classroom, I have, it's lined with just books on various subjects. Students can check out a book, they can inquire about a book, and I'm always asking students, what are you reading? I'm trying to let them know that they should be reading for the joy of reading and for their self-education versus being told that they have to read a particular text. 
So I, I talk about it in the classroom and I model that many times when I'm doing uh, constructing my assessments. My assessments are never cookie cutter out of the textbook. I always take a historical reference. Maybe it's something in the civil rights movement. Maybe it's something currently going on in current affairs. And my test questions are contextual questions that students have to read and they have to do some critical thinking. And the math is woven in the questions. So I'm trying to advocate and promote reading and understanding. And your earlier comment on collaboration is, is so critical. That's what we do in the real world. However, I think most math classes don't allow students to collaborate, particularly on an assessment. That's kind of voids everything that most math teachers think that uh, should be appropriate. But if we're really going to try to increase achievement and increase student engagement, we have to make sure that students are not petrified when they come in to demonstrate knowledge, that they understand that they can freely express what they think and they can get feedback and, you know, and it's okay. That's what I do to promote reading. And I also talk to students about the fear of failure, that that's just part of the process. You know this, you speak another language. And you, we don't always speak that language uh, uh, proficiently in the beginning. We try, we make errors in pronunciation in terms of what are we saying. We can say a word, but we can't say a sentence, but we keep at it. And pretty soon our proficiency increases. So it's really important to let students know that it's okay not to be an expert out of the gate, that they just have to be persistent. I really want to thank my guest, James Johnson, for really sharing his insights with us today about the challenges that teachers face, particularly when educating African-American male students in the subject of math. We're going to do a part two next time. So join us next time when he's going to share some specific case examples of success and the principles that he uses to make a difference. So join us next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan, for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.